Welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Morgan, and I'm here with my co-host, Gavia. Hello. Uh, so this week, we are going to be discussing the film Passengers, which we went to last night, which was an interesting experience for both of us. Um, we learned a lot about relationships. Yes, it was very illuminating <laughs> and educational. Um... Uh, yeah, we went into this movie knowing we were not going to like it. It was an exercise in masochism. But also, I mean, definitely falls under the title Overinvested because we've kind of been fascinated by this film for months. It's also, oh, yeah. I am not one of the many people who's read the script for this already, but the screenplay was kind of hovering around Hollywood and like knocking around on the internet for years and years. So a lot of people kind of went into this movie having at least a vague awareness of what the film was about. And, like, part of that is the idea that the movie had a twist. And I was kind of sure that I'd been spoiled for the twist. But the twist is actually that the movie doesn't have a twist. The twist is the marketing. Because they advertised it one way and the actual film is kind of a different story. (laughs) Well, the casting announcements, which were, like, a year plus ago, all explained the movie as it is. Yeah. Because it's literally the uh, premise of the film. Right. <laughs> like, the whole the whole concept behind the advertising campaign is them trying to sort of cover up <laughs> what the film is about. Because someone in Sony realised that if they tried to sell this at face value, everyone would be like, what the fuck are you doing? Yes. So if you've not seen the trailers or if you're kind of vaguely aware of this movie... First of all, we're obviously going to spoil this film, so, like, whatever. But we're sure you don't care. Um, but the trailers basically marked it as a romance with sort of sci-fi action elements. So the idea is that two people played by Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence are on this long haul space flight to another planet to settle as colonists. And there's like 5,000 people on this uh, giant spaceship, which is kind of, it's basically like a, like a cruise ship and they wake up 90 years early. Um, so they have to deal with kind of the issue of living together for 90 years um, until they die because they can't wake up anyone else and they can't get back to sleep. And it's a romance where they fall in love and then from the trailer you're like, oh shit, there's going to be some technical problem with the ship. However, what's the actual film about, Morgan? (laughs) Well, in fact, what happens is that Chris Pratt wakes up first and for a year he basically just goes crazy because he's Which is the most plausible part of the film because it's like, obviously you're alone in a spaceship, you know you're going to die alone, you can't do anything and you have no control over your surroundings... You do get depressed and grow a beard and get very upset and lonely and mad. Yeah. And then he winds up... He almost kills himself. And he doesn't. And literally, as he's coming back in from almost killing himself in space, he sees Jennifer Lawrence in her sleeping pod. Her name is Aurora, incidentally. Of course. Of course. Just like Sleeping Beauty. Yes. And the ship is also called Aurora. Because sure, why not? Um, And he becomes obsessed with her. He watches her little video diary thing that they all had to do, I guess, to be on the ship. Which is hilarious because so the whole idea is like, I mean, I can kind of accept that he would just fall in love with her because she's hot and like he's never heard, he's not heard a human voice in a year, okay? But because when you're watching a romance, you kind of want the characters to have something in common. And the whole relationship here obviously only works if it's like a stalker who's kind of creepily waking up this woman he's never met. But like her videos, she's a journalist, but she's like the archetypal movie lady journalist. So 
She's like a hot young woman who is ostensibly a writer. And the job that she has is that she likes spending time in New York. She enjoys coffee and she likes to write about life. So kind of the implication is that she's like a features writer for magazines and that sort of thing. And the reason why she's going on this space flight is because she can do this hundred year journey to the colony, write about the colony and then go back to Earth. And basically she'll have traveled 200 years into the future with a new book, which is a really wild and interesting concept, but like way too ambitious for the garbage in this film. And it also just fits into the trope of like really poorly written journalist roles for women in movies. Cause it's just like, here's a girl job that you can have. <laughs> you never see anything remotely professionally plausible. It's kind of like the problem everyone had with Gilmore Girls this season. Yes. Also her New York thing is that she likes to look at the Chrysler building and drink coffee and write. And I was like, I too love the Chrysler building, but also <laughs> shut up. Like, oh my God. It's just, it's so gloriously non-specific. It's like, does she have interests? Keep it vague. Keep it vague. <laughs> so anyway, he sees her and then reads her stuff and tells bartender robot Michael Sheen, who's his only companion, that it's like she completely understands him and her writing is just so amazing. Yeah. Which I would kind of buy in the sense that like he's gone mad yeah. and he, he's just, he's insane. And so he sort of goes back and forth about whether or not to wake her up. Obviously, he wakes her up. It's completely predictable that this will happen. It's not a twist. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like it's like maybe one quarter into the film. Yeah. So you've that. had just enough build-up time to know that Chris Pratt is really miserable when he's by himself. And then he wakes up Jennifer Lawrence and lies to her and pretends that they both woke up accidentally at the same time. No, he said he tells or her no, 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 yeah, that, that, yeah. He, he tells her that she's, he's been alone for a year, but like he he lies to her and pretends that they're both from a technical fault. Yeah, and the thing about this fake twist is that I think it's completely plausible that a person would do this, and in fact, I think that most people stuck in this situation would do this because it takes a lot of gumption to kill yourself. And basically, your two options are killing yourself or waking somebody up. Yeah, we've had like, this conversation. I was like, I was dead. I would definitely kill myself. Yeah, like, I'm not. I'm not waking anyone up. Right, and but I don't think me. most people would because you literally have sleeping people everywhere around you that you can stare at, and I think most people. Yeah, I mean, would, it's it's a in really state of madness. Yeah. Would just be like, ah, I need but, someone to but talk to. But it's also like a really interesting. Yeah, that the whole idea there is like really interesting and compelling, and it works. And for most of this film, I was just thinking how great it would be. First of all, probably with a female director, but also as a psychological thriller, because it works super well if the movie acknowledges that Chris Pratt's character has done something incredibly bad. And while you do see him sort of having this sort of moral quandary when he's making the decision, the film is clearly a romance where you're meant to be like rooting for their relationship (laughs) when it should be, you know... He's a sympathetic but basically unforgivable person who's like ruined a woman's life. Um, And it's also like, it's very much like a rape culture thing because basically he's decided this hot woman will fall in love with him. So he's like chosen her as his weird zombie bride. Um, (laughs) From her perspective, once she inevitably finds out what he's done, it's definitely like a psychological thriller situation because you're put in this position of living the rest of your life with this guy who's effectively a rapist. And there's other elements of the movie that would also kind of feed into that. So he's a mechanic and obviously some stuff goes wrong with the ship. So his mechanical skills are really useful. And in a psychological thriller, if she has to like rely on his skills in order to stay alive instead of just like gone girling him and murdering him, then that's an interesting and horrifying kind of emotional dilemma. 
And in this, it's just like a romance film and basically he's forgiven and it's just, it's really grotesque. And also there, before she kind of finds out what's, what the actual truth is, the relationship they build up between them is so astonishingly unconvincing. It's hilarious. It is <laughs> unbelievable. I Just staggering. It's staggering. You had in your review a great line that it's like a child's idea of what dating yeah. is like because basically the ship they're on is like it looks like an airport shopping mall like it's clearly visually modeled off this and they have these kind of you know they have like different nationalities of restaurants with like robot butlers and they have various entertainment stuff but it's like really basic things like there's a movie so there's like a cinema there's like a dance dance revolution stuff there's like a basketball court but obviously they're going to be stuck doing that forever for the rest of their lives but there's this cute montage of them doing these activities in a really false way with, like, no chemistry. (laughs) You see them having maybe one actual conversation, which is basically her just explaining what her background is. Like, her dad was a writer or whatever. It doesn't matter. It literally doesn't matter because it never comes up again. Yeah, and they also, they don't tell you stuff about him. No. Because she has... She has, like, the writing thing, which is her thing, much like when you have many films where a woman's thing is writing, yes. when they haven't thought about it. Um, and then his thing is, he, is that he's a mechanic, and sort of the idea they've got there is it's meant to be this sort of... It's like when people, like, originally um, kind of invaded America and they were all moving there, it's like, oh, it's, you know, this brave new world we're creating, and he really wants to make stuff with his hands. And I'm like, okay, right, I get this. It's very it's very American, and like, oh, I also understand kind of the concept behind it and why people would do that. But they don't explore any further, and there's also, like, this kind of little kernel of a class divide between them, which is, like, not explored at all. <laughs> right, like, she's... So there are different levels that you can have paid to be on the ship and that dictates how nice the food you can get is, yeah. right? So he's been eating the same boring breakfast for a year and then she shows up and she's paid for the really nice trip and she gets the nice breakfast. Where her money comes from, this is also never fully explained, but she's just, she's a rich person essentially. Yeah, I mean, the only um, way it makes sense is if you assume that, I mean, her her dad's um, a famous writer, so you've got to assume that he's famous enough that he's earned a lot of money. She's inherited the money. Right. And she's now some kind of heiress who thinks that she's a writer, but all of the writing you obviously see in the movie is, like, not good. Which is hilarious, because, like, who are these rich writers? There are, like, five of them. But sure. <laughs> They're whatever. all in movies. <laughs> exactly. She's um, friends with Rory from Gilmore Girls. Yeah. <laughs> but the one conversation they have that act beyond the breakfast conversation that actually engages with the class stuff at all is that she's saying she's writing this article that's sort of going to be an expose-ish on this company that's shipping people out to this planet and is talking about how everyone who is going is paying all this money to do this and she's going to write about it and they're just like lining the pockets of this company and he says actually no they they're starting all their new lives and you don't know anything about these people and he sort of takes her up to various people in their pods and covers up their little information cards and says so do you think this person has this name or this name or this profession or this profession and like he of course is the one who's right about or like you know, well he's looked at the thing well right like she is wrong about 
But I found that baffling because it was like the whole idea is like, oh, you've got to be able to judge by someone's face what their job is. And I was just like, when I was watching that scene, I was like, you can't really judge from someone's face what their job is. I don't understand what the message of this scene is meant to be. The message is that she's being judgmental and he, Chris Pratt, a man of the working people. Who read what their job was off the card. Right. (laughs) He's really in touch with... But then then that is like, so the big corporation is actually good? And then they never discuss this again. They do not discuss. Literally never again. It's just so... It's, you know, we did a podcast about Avatar a few months ago, which was like a truly fascinating film. I think one of the most fun podcasts we've recorded. But I didn't think I would come across another sci-fi blockbuster that had a worse grasp of this space colony thing than Avatar. And this does. It's managed the unthinkable. Because they never talk about it. No. They don't go into kind of whether people are escaping a really bad situation on Earth or whether it's just really really rich people plus a handful of mechanics like Chris Pratt's character who have practical skills and they need them or if the colony is even going to be there when they show up and up you know it's it's really and it's also coming into like a fairly well explored genre so you could rip off other stuff as many movies have ripped off Alien and end up with a better film than this but I think part of that is like the director Morton Tildum is obviously not going to add anything remotely sci-fi-ish to the screenplay that he got because he's not a sci-fi person and from the kind of few interviews I've read with him about this movie he seems like one of these people who's like yeah you know it's really rare to see a sci-fi film with character development it's like actually it's not you <laughs> <The> idiot <laughs> oh my god well yeah but also so like her whole plan of like I'm gonna do the round trip to Earth, it's like, I'll get back in like 250 years. And I was like, there will be no one alive. Like, everyone is going to be dead. I was just just fascinated that because even even the idea of the round trip where you take 100 years each way and you come back with a book that tells Earth what the colony is like 100 years ago, that is enough for like an incredibly complex science fiction novel. But it's just such a huge idea that it doesn't fit into the idea of this being like an intimate romance movie. Because you're just like, my mind is already blown by this woman who is played by Jennifer Lawrence, I assume she's meant to be about 25, who's abandoned her life and all her friends to go by herself on this cruise ship to an alien planet and then come back with a 200-year-old book that people on Earth probably won't be able to read because language has evolved a great deal in the last 200 years and potentially people will also also be like we don't know what books are we live in trees now (laughs) it's wild it's all very wild right and the sort of motivations for them leaving earth are so perplexing like she wants to write this book he wants to like start afresh but at one point they show a video of her best friend at her sort of goodbye party and her best friend is basically crying being like i know you've never been happy here but i wish you weren't leaving me because i'm gonna die while you're like on this spaceship which seems to me to be a fairly persuasive reason to not leave earth well i mean what like (laughs) the thing is right there's two ways that it can work for me right either she's so desperate to like find a new life and leave that she can like abandon all of her friends or she can be the character that makes sense in the context of the movie because in the film there is towards the end the ending sequence chris pratt's character has to kind of open an airlock to let a bunch of radiation out to fix the engine and he might die and she's like don't do it you know she's really worried about him even though by this point she knows that he's a monster Um, and she's in love with him again of course 
And her empathy for him is so strong that she's willing to like almost certainly destroy the entire spaceship. She loves him even after she knows he's done this terrible thing to her. That only makes sense if she's someone who has this tremendous level of human empathy where she can't stand to see anyone hurt. But like that doesn't really extrapolate to the 5,000 passengers unconscious in the ship. And it doesn't make any sense in the context of someone who would leave all of their friends behind on Earth. So it's completely inconsistent on top of the fact that her characterization on screen is extremely shallow. <laughs> yes. And I'm sure there are people who would sign up for this. I mean, there definitely there are. There definitely but are. to have, for it to sort of make sense on like a character level, you really have to establish why. And like, I was thinking about Interstellar a lot watching this in terms of like the reason that they have to construct for Matthew McConaughey to like, leave his children to go on this sort of like time bending thing is like the planet is a dying husk the only way we can get people out is for you the single person who can like fly the ship or whatever the fuck the thing is yeah to go literally this is it you are our last hope and also he's presented as kind of like he's always just flying whatever whereas this is like yeah i wanted to write an article and, <laughs> you know <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah oh it just and also like in that movie he's not like in theory, he's not leaving them. Yeah, forever. he's gonna it's come back. Like, it, it winds up, and it's like. But it. either way, it's very emotionally intense. And yes, it has, but I mean, I feel like, I mean, obviously, this is not like a prestige piece. It's more kind of it's aiming for like Nicholas Sparks. It's meant to be sort of a mainstream romance movie, but also a space movie. But, but this is something Morgan and I were talking about right after we watched it, which is that we couldn't figure out what the target audience is for this. Like, it's clearly meant to be a date movie because. It's fulfilling, I guess, two kind of stereotypical ideas of what men and women would like. Like, hey, we're going to make a film for everyone. So it's going to have like a really garbage romance for the women and it's going to have spaceships for the men. And anyone who goes into this movie from based on the trailer for the film is just going to be like, what the fuck? Did I just like... <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, it's a film where Jennifer Lawrence and Chris Pratt are really uncharacteristically uncharming and unfunny. They don't have any chemistry. One of them's a stalker who like murders the other one and she falls in love with him. And the third character is an android bartender played by Michael Sheen. <laughs> the romance is bad. The sci-fi is bad. They look like plastic people. It I... cost like $120 million. And it, visually, like, it doesn't look good. So, okay, we've got to talk about the design. Oh my God. <laughs> so this oh is fascinating God. because... This film doesn't look good. I mean, it looks like money's been spent on it, but in terms of the thought that has gone into the design, the spaceship, as we've mentioned, looks like a really clean kind of mall environment and like a classy but not particularly interesting hotel. So when Chris Pratt decides that he wants like an A-list cabin, he kind of breaks into someone's cabin and it's just like a kind of really plain, featureless, like grey, beautiful room with a slidey staircase that looks like you'd fall off it instantly and die. Um... <laughs> And even like special effects stuff isn't that great. There's several anti-gravity, zero-gravity scenes. And there was a lot of movies with zero-gravity scenes and this couldn't even manage it. Like I watched the TV show The Expanse and I don't know what the budget is for that, but I'm guessing it's not huge. They have a lot of zero-gravity scenes in that that are completely fine. And in this, it was like, I don't know, like it just, it just didn't look convincing. Not at um, all. And also the costumes are weirdly very bad. And we looked up the costume designer and she is, I'm not going to even attempt to pronounce her name because it's, I believe, Dutch. Yeah, but you can like find this on Timmy or something. Yeah. But she has done Skyfall. 
she did Children of Men, which has one of the best, like, costume... Yeah, I mean, she has done a lot of really high-profile movies, and there were so many movies on her IMDb where I was like, I specifically singled out this film as having excellent costume design. Like, Skyfall, I wrote an entire article about how great the costume design is in this. So it's clearly one of these situations where talented people are involved in a film, and something has happened to enforce them into... (laughs) Well, the cinematographer also shot Silence, which is coming out imminently, and you can just tell from the trailer that it's stunningly beautiful. He shot Brokeback Mountain. Like, what? (laughs) What? And, like, after this, Uh... Morgan was sort of comparing Passengers to a Lifetime movie from one of the camera shots. (laughs) I was like, what happened? (laughs) Oh, my God. I mean, Jennifer Lawrence's costumes in this film... I was mesmerized by them. The entire time I was just staring at them completely transfixed. She is dressed like a really rich woman in her 40s who maybe is like an agent or like an entertainment lawyer or like an extreme... I mean, I was imagining her as a Rosamund Pike character because it's sort of like a lot of her clothes are black or white and sheer. There's a lot of extremely expensive looking formal outfits. So even she's wearing, when they're going on dates, she's wearing sort of like a dress or something. And then on day to day, she's wearing a blouse, but it's not kind of like, oh, I'm wearing a button down shirt. It's very kind of structural and there's a lot of kind of transparent fabrics. And the only times when she's not wearing that is when she's running. And she's always like, either she's wearing like full makeup and looks gorgeous or she's not wearing makeup but looks gorgeous because they've kind of smoothed over Jennifer Lawrence's face with CGI effects and her hair is always like slightly curled like it's been curled with a curling iron whereas Chris Pratt <laughs> grows like a depression beard because he's really miserable by himself and like gets to stop watching but for some reason Jennifer Lawrence is just like always got to be really beautiful wearing clothes that like you're moving to a space colony where they have to literally bring the cows with them so you have milk so your wardrobe is going to be like, you're going to bring one pretty dress and like 10 boxes of just cargo pants and underwear. Right. Uh, just <gasps> truly baffling costume decisions. And I really, I think after looking at, at this costume designer's kind of resume, we do not want to blame her. Right. <laughs> for whoever made the decision for the clothes in this film. Clearly she was directed towards some kind of vision that is not, um, does not make sense. <laughs> well, it's just amazing because it's a classic instance of Jennifer Lawrence once again playing a woman who is like 20 years older than she is in real life. Which is hilarious because the decisions that Jennifer Lawrence romantically makes in this film would only make sense if she was like 19. Cause she's like, yeah, sure, I guess I'll just sleep with this guy who I'm on a spaceship with for the rest of my life. I can't really see how there could be any negative repercussions. Which, like, it would only make sense if she reacted to her situation by being incredibly depressed and just, like, kind of, and then kind of just, like, manically, like, yeah, it doesn't like, matter, yeah. let's just fuck, like, yeah. sure, but that's not There are happens. definitely ways like, in which you can legitimize everything that happens in this film, but, like, none of them. <laughs> like, none you have of to it dig deep, it's just, you know, they just fall in love because it's really romantic and... You know, it's a film about how you can find love in difficult places and all the things you do to survive. And it's like, don't I don't think so. Also, the way she finds out that um, that he has been the one to ruin her life is that uh, robot butler Michael Sheen... The best character in the movie. By far the best character in the movie. Like, they're, they're going on one of their many dates. And 
she says something about how like there are no secrets between whatever the fuck his name Jim and me and uh, <laughs> Michael Sheen is like really is that so because he of course knows all about this whole situation and Grace Pratt is like yep and then goes to the bathroom because he's working himself up to propose to her because marriage on a spaceship full of sleeping people when no one was ever going it's to see you again is very beautiful. truly a heteronormative nightmare oh my god and um <laughs> Michael Sheen says something like, oh, like, you know, he was so excited to meet you. And like, this is so great. And she's like, what? what? <laughs> and he's like, oh, yeah, before he woke you up. Like, I was, you were, you're so wonderful. Like, it was, you know. Turned out it worked out really well. Right. And she's like, mm. And then freaks out. And then in short order, is like, actually, I guess we are meant to be together. It's like the only good moment in the film. Yeah. So Michael Sheen is like, let me take this into my own hands. But the Michael Sheen robot is so good, right? Because the whole idea is that he's, I mean, he's not meant to be properly artificially intelligent. He's programmed specifically to be sort of a sympathetic, funny bartender. So everything he says is sort of subtly cool, fun bartender um, at like a posh bar. And also he doesn't have deep kind of moral conversations. So before... Chris Pratt is going to wake up Jennifer Lawrence. He's kind of asking, you know, if I was had to do this thing that's really bad and could hurt someone's life, then should I do it? And the robot's like, well, obviously not. And he's like, but you know, it will really definitely demonstrably improve my life and I'll feel a lot better. And the robot's like, well, obviously you should do it then. <laughs> so it's like he doesn't have these really deep decision-making capabilities. But at the same time, the stuff that he says is extremely well characterised to the idea of him being like a realistically human-seeming but not very intelligent kind of facsimile of this particular yeah. stock character whereas the actual two human characters have like no thought put into their characterization <laughs> at all so you're just like yeah michael sheen's like a really great role in this movie but at the same time something i hadn't considered until morgan pointed out this is like the only sci-fi movie in history that has a near human robot in it and they do not even slightly attempt to deal with the idea of artificial intelligence or like examine this in any way no. so there are multiple comments especially from chris pratt at the beginning of the movie when he's alone where he's kind of like, but you don't even feel things. You don't feel this. And he like hits him in the face, whatever. And then, like, this sort of continues periodically throughout the movie. It's not like it's an emphasis. But they make comments to this effect from time to time. And in any other movie, this would lead to a sort of, like, Michael Fassbender and Prometheus, like, I'm going to fuck with all of you and put a baby inside of your stomach and it's going to, like, whatever. Like, you're going to have a monster. Like, and instead, it's just like, yep, yeah, watch. I don't, like... <laughs> so, it was just it's so emblematic of how stupid this movie is that they didn't realize that, like, this is actually what you're supposed to do. And I think it already it also fits really closely with um, I mean the guy who wrote this also co-wrote Prometheus like he wrote one of the drafts of Prometheus yeah. but like the kind of execution really fits in with my vision of the director Morton Tilden not understanding what sci-fi is <laughs> it's like this kind of guy who made like you know he's made like a historical drama and now he's going to make this movie with loads and loads of money but he's like never watched a sci-fi film maybe like I don't know if he's presumably he's seen many because he's a filmmaker but he made the he's Imitation not. Game, if people yeah. are not familiar. Yeah. Um, um, and apparently it was his like dream to do a big budget sci-fi film, he claims. But he doesn't seem to have ever seen one. Yeah. So I don't really understand. I was thinking of the film Event Horizon, <laughs> which I watched a couple of months ago. So 
it's a long forgotten movie from I think the mid 90s I don't remember starring Lawrence Fishburne and a selection of other actors from that era so it's like shortly before the Matrix era Lawrence Fishburne Um, and it's about like a crew on board a spaceship that's like very clearly a ripoff of Alien where they kind of wake up from their cryosleep early you know I mean it's, it's a thriller and the first half of it is like pretty good and then the second half goes completely off the rails and it's absolute nonsense and it's kind of famous for being a bit of a Hollywood flop and like just not being as well executed as Alien because I'd watched it so recently I was kind of watching this and all the way through I was just like I can't believe how much better the infamous Event Horizon (laughs) is than this movie right Event Horizon being a film where they literally not figuratively end up in actual hell (laughs) (laughs) it's just well well Lawrence Fishburne also uh, yeah that's what I was thinking of it because Lawrence Fishburne pops up halfway through this film he is the equivalent of the um, of the Matt Damon in this film yeah Oh, yeah, he literally appeared, except that Matt Damon actually has like an interesting Oh yeah, no, I mean, he's a surprise in the film. Yes. So he is the yes. equivalent of, we have yeah, really spoiled and, you for the presence of Matt Damon yeah. in Interstellar. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, I, I mean, I had no idea Lawrence Fisher was in this. He shows up for maybe 15 minutes, gives it's, them a bracelet for them to get into chambers that they couldn't access. It's, it's really shocking. So like what happens is he is one of the people who's actually the, um, the staff. So... Before, the reason why Chris Pratt didn't wake up one of the pilots is because they're in like a locked-in area. So there's another pod malfunction and this guy who's an officer wakes up and he is able to give them more information about why the ship is failing and kind of give them the access bracelet, like Morgan said, to like allow them to kind of stave off the final sequence of the movie, which is, you know, the ship inevitably kind of having some kind of catastrophe that they then have to fix with, like, stuff that you can mysteriously fix with a spanner. It is the most disgusting plot device nonsense. I love Lawrence Fishburne. He's wonderful. His character in this is definitely more likable and sympathetic than either of the leads by far, because he's just like, I'm a sensible man who wants to do my job. And you two lunatics are just having a weird personal drama on this ship. (laughs) Like, he does have a pretty gross moment where he's, like, acting all sympathetic towards nightmare rapist Chris Pratt. But apart from that, love Lawrence Fishburne. But it's like, they literally introduce the black guy so he can help the two romantic, wholesome, A-lister white leads survive by giving them his bracelet and telling them how to fix the ship. And then he just dies. It's fine. It's I was good. just like, this <laughs> is very bad. Oh my god. <laughs> it's bad. I mean, it would be bad if he... Yeah, it's just it's bad all around. It was <laughs> It was unbelievable. I just couldn't... I could not believe it. I was staggered. The only upside of this is that Lawrence Fishburne got paid. Because I'm happy for Lawrence Fishburne it's to get true. a lot of money. It's like, true. I, I'm you know. also pleased with this. <laughs> um, we should discuss the very end. Which yeah. is perhaps the most astonishing part. Although I was not at all surprised about what ended up happening and you were. Mm. So what happens is that they have these empty pods, but they can't go back to sleep because the whole process of being put in this thing is you have to pile these chemicals, whatever. But at the end, Chris Pratt realizes that there's like one... It's like a medical pod that you can get put in stasis. Yeah. And so he says to Jennifer Lawrence, like, you're going to get in and you're going to write your book and, you know, it'll be great. And she's like, but you'll be alone. Yeah. 
So, like, my two, my two answers to this situation while this scene was happening, I was like, okay, realistically speaking, I know what's going to happen, which is that both of them are going to curl up in the pod together and someone's going to wake up to find them curled up at the other end and they'll be happy together and that's going to be the terrible ending. The ending I wanted to happen more plausibly in the context of the film is that Chris Pratt sends Jennifer Lawrence to sleep, he wakes her up for one day per year so that, like, he still gets her one day per year. And then she watches him age. And that's another horrible ending that I would accept in the context of the film. What actually happened, <laughs> and which I, I could see coming from a mile away, was that she rejects the, the pod and they live together until they're dead. Uh, uh, alone on this spaceship. They live out 90 years in a mall. <laughs> where they've already been on dates to all of the available mall activities oh and so like obviously God. you don't see I mean thankfully you do not see any of this period so the final shot of the film is like the rest of the staff are waking up and they come into the main concourse and it's got like trees and plants and animals all over it so what Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence have done in the intervening 90 years is that you've broken into the essential survival stocks for the 5,000 colonists <laughs> freed the animals and started growing the trees in the ship and from earlier scenes in the ship, we know that the ships just basically go backwards and forwards. So what it's meant to do is it's meant to just go back again. It's a shuttle. It's not meant to stay there. So you can't like uproot the tree. It's a fucking, I mean, so they've just, I mean, obviously like I'm not like unsympathetic towards that. Cause like, of course you'd end up setting the plants free and stuff. It's just heaping indignity upon indignity when that's the final scene of the movie and they've built a tree house. And it's like, yeah, isn't it really satisfying when you lose all of your hopes and dreams, but you do get to spend life with this guy you have nothing in common with who kind of ruined your life. <laughs> just go in the fucking pod, Jennifer. <laughs> go in the fucking pod. Oh my God. Well, also, I just, again, was thinking to like, so Interstellar has the stupidest twist of a film I have ever seen. It's in hysterical. My life. I still laugh to this day. Yes. Unbelievable. <laughs> However, I love that film. And every new one of these bullshit movies I see makes me appreciate it more. Because, like, oh. And so at the end of that movie, having sort of been, like, desperately trying to get back to his daughter he doesn't care about his son very much um desperately trying to get back to his daughter for like a long time um Matthew McConaughey winds up like finding her on the other planet they've settled and she I think it's written Vanessa Redgrave it's, it's, it's yeah she's she's like she's, 70 so she's because very of the time old. dilation yeah. yeah and it's it's very moving and I was like okay so they've arbitrarily picked the number Right? Of like how many years it takes. It's not like this is a real fucking thing. So they can just shave 20 or 30 years off and she can just go to sleep and he could be like, you know, I'll see you when you wake up. The movie would still be a fucking piece of shit, but that (laughs) makes a whole lot more sense and would be more compelling insofar as anything about this movie could ever be compelling than like, yeah, I guess we're just going to live forever in a mall. And the thing is, I can, I mean... uh, if they'd sold the romance, like obviously from a moral perspective, there's no way I'm going to be on board with this because I'm just like, that's terrible. But if they'd sold the romance so that it really felt like they were passionately obsessed with each other and it was like an amazing romance, then it would be a bit more okay. But it's just the most basic thing ever. They are the most boring people I've ever seen and in a like movie. They're like boring, passionless. They like... have nothing in common. 
It's not like they did like a before sunrise in a spaceship. It's like that the I whole would watch. thing. It, yeah. That I would watch. But it's literally, it's like a subpar Tinder date, but for like 90 years. <laughs> also, Chris Pratt and Jennifer Lawrence are bad in this film. Yeah, yeah. They do not do stuff that they're good at. No. The script is abysmal. Like, apart from everything we've been discussing, I have rarely heard dialogue this bad. <laughs> Every single line, I was just sitting there and I was like, I mean, you should not go see this film, in case you couldn't tell that we think this, but, like, I can't wait to look up the screenplay online and I recommend doing so because I mean, it was... I've definitely heard dialogue that bad because I watch a lot more bad movies, but, like, it was shocking. Yeah, it was <laughs> It was very bad. So they had nothing to work with. But also, Jennifer Lawrence was just wildly miscast. She is not, does not play to her strengths at all. All her sort of, like, big emotional moments were not good. And Chris Pratt is just, you said he's playing Chris Pratt character, but with no jokes. Yeah, because the idea of the stuff that Chris Pratt is known for is that he plays sort of likable, every man, goofy, but like slightly douchebaggy guys with like a working class job. So it's like, that's what he is in Parks and Rec. That's what he is in Guardians of the Galaxy, although you know he's like a space pirate, but you know what I mean. (laughs) And then that's what he's doing in Jurassic World, right? Which is the stuff, the only stuff that people know him from. And then this kind of seems like the concept really kind of works off that. So I can see in another film how that would be like an interesting twist on his image because it would take what you expect from Chris Pratt and then be like, oh, actually, he's all of those things. And also someone who's like a square jawed, wholesome mechanic can be a monster, right? But no, that's not what they do. They just do kind of a really thin version of the type of character he's usually playing and don't have any jokes. And he doesn't do any cool movie star stuff either. They don't make use of interesting action sequences or anything like that. The only distinctive sequence they have is when Jennifer Lawrence is in the pool and the anti-gravity stuff stops working. So she's like floating in a bubble and nearly drowning. And they have it in all of the trailers because it's clearly like the only sci-fi thing in the entire film that's remotely useful. After I wrote my review, I was sort of thinking, okay, this film is wildly overpriced as is very clear because it shouldn't cost like 110, 120 million dollars. So I kind of looked up the price for Jupiter Ascending, which went over budget. They filmed twice as much footage as they needed. It's set on multiple like weird planets. It's covered in special effects. It's got a cast of thousands. It's got like, you know, they added wings to Channing Tatum. (laughs) The whole thing is in neon. It looks amazing and it's completely bonkers. And the directors are both like really well known. That cost 176 million. So, I mean, obviously it's more, it's like $50 million more, but you could literally have filmed Passengers in your local shopping mall. You could have, <laughs> because like, the kind of, I can imagine the screenplay for Passengers would also have worked as a really low budget movie. It would have worked as like a romance version of Moon. Yep. And then, and then they did yep. this. They just like flushed a bunch of money down a toilet. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, the two actors' salaries combined, I think, were $32 million. But that still leaves... 80 mm. plus. Mm. So, Born and Tilt Them didn't cost very much. <laughs> like, it is just. I, I do not. I really understand. hope the answer to this is that a visual effects studio was embezzling money. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just take it all, man. Sure. I mean, literally every shot in the film is a, is a yeah, visual yeah, effects yeah. shot. Which also is not. And you can tell the whole thing just looks fake. It looks well. That was one of the things that, like, I think the reason why, like, both of us kind of started fixating on this movie when the trailers first arrived is because 
they do just both look so mannequin-like. All the way through watching the film, I started getting really obsessed with Jennifer Lawrence's eye bags. Yes. Um, because, like, obviously, like, her, you know, she's a, she's in her 20s and, like, she's a really beautiful woman and she has quite, like, a naturally plump face. That's what she looks like and we've all seen her in The Hunger Games. And then when you watch this movie, it's like, first of all, she kind of looks like maybe there's, like, Botox or something, I don't know. But they've done... I think the CGI enhancement thing where you just sort of airbrush out all of someone's like facial flaws and pores and stuff. And there's no natural eye bag under her eyes. Yeah. Where there, I mean, I, I don't think she has like giant black circles under her eyes, but I'm just, it was just weird because it kind of just felt like I was watching like a CGI animated character. There's one scene where and the lighting is never like. Yeah. There's a scene when they're on a date where she literally, like, she's got a ton of makeup on as well. It was genuinely uncanny valley levels of... I mean, they're doing it a ton to him as well, you could tell. But with her, it was it was unsettling. And there's also like a scene when they're in bed and she's kind of got the sheet conveniently over the parts of her that actions always have a sheet over. But like her arm was just like... It was like just airbrushed into... I was like, that's not what skin looks like at all. <laughs> Please! <laughs> like, and I just thought... Like, I mean, all studios do this for all the big films, but it was to such an extreme degree that I thought, well, who, do, they, do people want to look at this? Maybe they do. I don't know, but I certainly do not. This is not, I mean... It's just really sanitized and yeah. weird. It's this is supposed to be like a sexy romance film, and it was the least sexy thing I have ever seen <laughs> possibly in my entire life. Like, I... The sex scenes, oh my god. She, like, climbs over a breakfast table to, like, straddle him, and then they have sex on the breakfast table, but you don't actually have see them having sex because it's a PG-13 film and they can't show anything. And I was just like, what is this? Like, but when I you think about, like, PG-13 like... movies that do have, without showing anything, that are, like, sexy, this was not one of those. Oh, no, you can get away with quite a bit. And this was just, like... Oh, my god. I don't... It gets back to sort of, like, who the audience is for this, right? Yeah, there's like, no answer. There really isn't. I would love to see the sort of, like, studio document because I don't understand... It just gave me like a junk food craving for Gone Girl. It's just like kind of Gone Girl satisfies the desires I get from watching this film. Yeah. Which is having a basic blonde lady turn out to be a monster and just like kill a bunch of people. Like, great, cool. Love it. We could watch it tonight. We oh could my watch God. Gone Girl. Want to do it? Yeah. <laughs> um, we would recommend Gone Girl. Yeah, um, Event Horizon. I mean, I actually wouldn't recommend Red Horizon, but I did enjoy it because I love garbage. Um, um, if you really want to see a space movie with time stuff, Interstellar. Interstellar. Prepare yourself for the stupidest twist I mean, of all time. The final very... third of Interstellar will give you a lot of anecdotes to tell other people when they've never heard Interstellar, which right. I really enjoy doing. But uh, um, I cried, so that's good. Also, yeah, just don't watch this. I mean, film. Arrival, right? Like, because yes, Arrival if, came yes. out literally a month ago, right? If it's still in theaters, yeah. which in most places it should be. Please go see Arrival. <laughs> the idea of oh like advertising God. passengers is like, well, you know, it's a rare example of a sci-fi film that has that big budget, but also that intimate emotional feeling. It's like Arrival. It's literally just... Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. A good film. So embarrassing. <laughs> and also even Rogue One. Rogue One, which kind of did not characterize a lot of its characters, was better characterized than this film. No, no question. Absolutely no question at all. Bad year for blockbusters. <laughs> Not been good. Well, I think that's um, our last podcast of the year. Yeah, yeah, and we're so. going to be ringing in the new year with 
either Assassin's Creed or Yuri on Ice. So you can't lose. Yeah. I mean, Assassin's Creed is going to be a masterpiece. Clearly. And Yuri on Ice, I know for a fact, is just the best thing ever. So if you've not seen the world's best figure skating anime, now's the time. Yes. Cram all 12 episodes in, you will not regret it. Yeah. Uh, So enjoy the last week of the year. And we will be back soon. As ever, if you enjoyed this, please consider leaving a rating or review on iTunes. It's how we find new listeners. And you can find us on overinvestedpodcast.com, on Twitter at overinvestedpod, or on Tumblr at overinvestedpodcast. Thanks. Bye.